Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in, come in. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Grab a bite, grab a drink, and snuggle up to someone you like to snuggle with, because tonight we have a treat for you. More on that later. I want to say, when you get settled, I want to say that I feel very comfy nested in the District of Wonders with Tony, Jack Calvary, Dave Robeson. We've got an excellent start here on taking over the world, so I am looking forward to what to what will be my portion of that empire. I'll leave that to your imagination. The kickoff shows, by the way, for Crime City Central and protecting Project Pulped were superb, and the starship is in jump drive as always. I hope some of you midnight people out there will stand up to the brighty sounds of day and peer your ears and imaginations into the District of Wonders and drink deep from that font. But Friday nights are for us, yes? Yes. Now, tonight, 
I asked you to find a comfortable snuggle partner, and I hope some of them are kids, too, because because tonight's show will feature some of our favorite beasties. We've all seen Ratatouille, yes? Remy, uh, adorable, oui? So cute, his little kumquat nose. Très charmant, hmm? His family, though, oh, well, oh, they come out all right in the end, but earlier, in their swarming, furry, squeaky ways, didn't they maybe give you just a touch of the willies, hmm? Yes, and they were cute. Tonight, we feature not-cute rats. Rats below, rats around, above, rats everywhere. Everywhere there is to be, there will be rats. Tonight, yes, we'll have a classic tale from a little-known French writer, Georges Tudou. Georges Tudou was the son of a far more famous writer, Gustave Tudou. Hmm? Yes, yes, another artist we, most of us, have never read or even knew existed. But Georges, Georges wrote one thing for which... Most Americans alive in the late 1940s and 50s knew and, oh, knew well. It was a little 4,000-word tale called Three Skeleton Key. And tonight we'll have another little experiment. Tonight we'll feature the story as Monsieur Todou wrote it. I'll read it to you, and then right after that, without a break... We'll hear it again. Ah, but this time, this time, it will be acted out for you, but, well, you probably know already, right? If not, well, you'll hear. As I said, we'll have them, one right on the tail of the other. First, and because I do not want to follow the performances to come, here is... Georges Tadeu's Three Skeleton Key. My most terrifying experience? Well, one does have a few in 35 years of service in the lights, although... It's mostly monotonous, routine work, keeping the light in order, making out the reports. Uh, well, when, yes, when I was a young man, not very long in the service, there was an opening in a lighthouse, newly built, off the coast of Guiana. It was on a small rock twenty or so miles off from the mainland. The pay was high, so in order to reach the sum I had set out to save before I was married, I volunteered for service in the new light. Three Skeleton Key. The small rock on which the light stood bore a bad reputation. It earns its name from the story of the three convicts who, escaping from Cayenne in a stolen dugout canoe, were wrecked on the rock during the night, managed to escape the sea, but eventually died of hunger and thirst. When they were discovered, nothing remained but three heaps of bones picked clean by birds. <laughs> The story was that the three skeletons, gleaming with phosphorescent light, danced over the small rock, screaming. 
There are many such stories, and I did not give the warnings of the old-timers on the Isle de Seine. A second thought. I signed up, boarded the ship, and in a month I was installed at the light. Picture... Mm, picture a gray, tapering cylinder welded to the solid black rock by iron rods and concrete rising from a small island twenty-odd miles from land. It lay in the midst of the sea, this island, a small, bare piece of stone about... One hundred and fifty feet long, perhaps forty wide, small, barely large enough for a man to walk about and stretch his legs at low tide. This is an advantage one doesn't find in all lights, however, for some of them rise sheer from the waves, with no room for one to move save within the light itself. Well, still, on our island, one must be careful, for the rocks were treacherously smooth. One misstep and down you would fall, into the sea. <laughs> Not that the risk of drowning was so great, but the waters around our island swarmed with huge sharks that kept an eternal patrol around the base of the light. Still, it was a nice life there. We had enough provisions to last for months in the event that the sea should become too rough for the supply ship to reach us on schedule. During the day, we would work about the light, cleaning the rooms, polishing the metalwork, and the lens, and the reflector of the light itself, and at night, at night we would sit in the gallery and watch our light, a twenty-thousand-candle-power lantern swing its strong white bar of light over the sea from the top of its hundred-and-twenty-foot tower. Some days, when the air would be very clear, we could see the land, a thread-like line to the west, to the east, north, and south— "'Stretch the ocean. "'Landsmen, perhaps, would soon have tired of that kind of life. "'Perched on a small island off the coast of South America "'for eighteen weeks until, until one's turn for leave at shore came round. "'But we liked it there, my two fellow-tenders and myself, "'so much so that for twenty-two months on end, "'with the exception of shore leaves, "'I was greatly satisfied with the life on Three Skeleton Key.' I had just returned from my leave at the end of June, that is to say midwinter in that latitude, and had settled down to the routine with my two fellow-keepers, a Breton by the name of Le Gluo, and the head-keeper, Ichua, a Basque, some oh, a dozen years or so older than either of us. Eight days went by, as usual, and then on the ninth night after my return, Ichua who was on night duty, called Liglio and me, sleeping on our rooms in the middle of the tower at two in the morning. We, we rose immediately, and, climbing the thirty or so steps that led to the gallery, stood beside our chief. Now, ships were a rare sight in our waters, for our light was a warning of treacherous reefs, barely hidden under the surface and running far out to sea— Consequently, we were always given a wide berth, especially by sailing vessels, which cannot maneuver readily as steamers. No wonder that we were surprised at seeing this three-master heading dead for us in the gloom of early morning. I had immediately recognized her lines, for she stood out plainly, even at the distance of a mile when our light shone on her. She was a beautiful ship, 
some 4,000 tons, a fast sailor that had carried cargoes to every part of the world, plowing the seas unceasingly. By her line, she was identified as Dutch-built, which was understandable, as Paramaribo and Dutch Guiana are very close to Cayenne. Watching her sailing dead for us, a white wave boiling her bows, Le Gliot cried out, "'What's wrong with their crew? Are they all drunk or insane? Can't they see us?' Itchu nodded soberly, looking at us sharply as he remarked, "'See us? No doubt. If there is a crew aboard—' "'What do you mean, chief?' Liglio had started. Turned to the Basque. "'Are you saying that she's the flying Dutchman?' His sudden fright had been so evident that it set the older man laughing. "'No, old man, it's not what I meant.' If I say there's no one aboard, I mean she's derelict. Then we understood her queer behavior. Itchua was right. For some reason, believing she was doomed, her crew had abandoned her. Then she had righted herself and sailed on, wandering with the wind. The three of us grew tense as the ship seemed about to crash on one of our numerous reefs, but suddenly— she lurched with some change of the wind. The yards swung round, and the derelict came clumsily about and sailed dead away from us. In the light of our lantern, she seemed so sound, so strong, that Ichua exclaimed impatiently, "'But why the devil was she abandoned? Nothing is smashed, no sign of fire, and she doesn't sail as if she were taking water.' <laughs> Liglio waved to the departing ship. Bon voyage! She smiled at Achua and went on. She's leaving us, chief. Now we'll never know. No, she's not, cried the Basque. Look, she's turning. As if obeying his words, the derelict three-master stopped, came about, and headed for us once more. And— for the next four hours, the vessel played around us, zigzagging, coming about, stopping, then suddenly lurching forward. No doubt some freak of current and wind, of which our island was the center, kept her near us. Then suddenly the tropic dawn broke. The sun rose, and it was day, and the ship was plainly visible as she sailed past us. Our light extinguished, we returned to the gallery with our glasses and inspected her. The three of us focused our glasses on her poop, saw, standing out sharply, black letters on the white background of a life-ring, the stenciled name Cornelius de Witt Rotterdam. We had read her lines correctly. She was Dutch. Just then the wind rose, and the Cornelius de Witt changed course, leaned to port, and headed straight for us once more. But this time, oh, she was so close that we knew she would not turn in time. Thunder! cried Liglio, his Breton soul, aching to see a fine ship doomed to smash upon a reef. She's going to pile up! She's gone! I shook my head. Yes, and a shame to see that beautiful ship wreck herself, and we're helpless. Well, there was nothing we could do but watch, a ship sailing with all sails spread, creaming the sea with her forefoot as she runs before the wind, is one of the most beautiful sights in the world. But this time 
I could feel the tears stinging in my eyes as I saw this fine ship headed for her doom. All this time our glasses were riveted on her, and we suddenly cried out together, "'The rats!' Now we knew why the ship, in perfect condition, was sailing without her crew aboard. They had been driven out by the rats. Well, not these poor specimens of rat you see ashore, barely reaching the length of one foot from their trembling noses to the tip of their skinny tails, wretched creatures that dodge and hide at the mere sound of a footfall. No, no, these, these were ships, rats, huge, wise creatures born on the sea, sailing all over the world on ships transferring to other, larger ships as they multiply. Oh, there is much difference between the rats of the land and these maritime rats as between a fishing smack and an armored cruiser. The rats of the sea were fierce, bold animals, large, strong, and intelligent, clannish, and sea-wise, able to put the best of mariners to shame with their knowledge of the sea, their uncanny ability to foretell the weather. Oh, and they are brave, the rats, and vengeful. If you so much as harm one, his sharp cry will bring hordes of his fellows to swarm over you, tear you, and not cease until your flesh has been stripped from your bones. The ones on this ship, the rats of Holland, oh, they're the worst, superior to other rats of the sea, as their brethren are to the land rats. There is a well-known tale about these animals. A Dutch captain, uh, thinking to protect his cargo, brought aboard his ship not cats— but two terriers, dogs trained in the hunting, fighting, and killing of vicious rats. By the time the ship sailing from Rotterdam had passed the Ostend light, the dogs were gone and never seen again. In twenty-four hours they had been overwhelmed, killed, and eaten by the rats. At times, when the cargo does not suffice, the rats attack the crew, either driving them from the ship or <laughs> eating them alive. And studying the Cornelius de Witt, I turned sick, for her small boats were all in place. She had not been abandoned. Over her bridge, on her deck, in the rigging, on every visible spot, the ship was a writhing mass, a starving army coming toward us on a vessel gone mad. Oh, our island was a small spot in that immense stretch of sea. The ship could have grazed us past a port of starboard with its ravening cargo, but no, she came for us at full speed, as if she were leading the regatta at a race and impaled herself on a sharp point of rock. There was a dull shock as her bottom stove in, then a horrible crackling as three masts went overboard at once, as if cut down with one blow of some gigantic sickle. A sighing groan came as the water rushed into the ship. Then she split in two and sank like a stone. But the rats, 
the rats did not drown, not these fellows. As much at home in the sea as any fish, they formed ranks in the water, heads lifted, tails stretched out, paws paddling, and half of them, those from the forepart of the ship, sprang along the masts and onto the rocks in the instant before she sank. Before we had time even to move, nothing remained of the three masters save some pieces of wreckage floating on the surface and an army of rats covering the rocks left bare by the receding tide. Thousands of heads rose felt the wind, and we were scented, seen. To them we were fresh meat after possible weeks of starving. Came a scream composed of innumerable screams, sharper than the howl of a saw attacking a bar of iron, and in the one motion every rat leaped to attack the tower— we barely had time to leap back, close the door leading to the gallery, descend the stairs, and shut every window tightly. Luckily, the door at the base of the light, which we never could have reached in time, was a bronze set in granite and was tightly closed. The horrible band, in no measurable time, had swarmed up and over the tower as if it had been a tree. They piled on the embrasures of the windows, scraped at the glass with thousands of claws, covered the lighthouse with a furry mantle, and reached the top of the tower, filling the gallery and piling atop the lantern. Their teeth grated as they pressed against the glass of the lantern room where they could plainly see us though they could not reach us. A few millimeters of glass, luckily very strong, separated our faces from their gleaming, beady eyes, their sharp claws and teeth. Their odor filled the tower, poisoned our lungs, and rasped our nostrils with a pestilential, nauseating smell. And there we were, sealed alive in our own light, "'prisoners of a horde of starving rats. "'That first night, the tension was so great we, we could not sleep. "'Every moment we felt that some opening had been made, "'some window given way, and that our horrible besiegers "'were pouring through the breach, the rising tide, "'chasing those of the rats which had stayed on the bare rocks.' "'increased the numbers clinging to the walls, "'piled on the balcony, "'so much so that the clusters of rats clinging to one another "'hung from the lantern and the gallery. And "'With the coming of darkness we lit the light, "'and the turning beam completely maddened the beasts. "'As the light turned, it successively blinded thousands of rats "'crowded against the glass, "'while the dark side of the lantern room gleamed "'with thousands of points of light, "'burning like the eyes of jungle beasts in the night.' All the while, we could hear the enraged scraping of claws against the stone and the glass, while the chorus of cries was so loud that we had to shout to hear one another. From time to time, some of the rats fought among themselves, and a cluster would detach itself, falling into the sea like a ripe fruit from a tree. Then we would see phosphorescent streaks as triangular fins slashed the water, sharks, permanent guardians of our rock, feasting on our jailers. The next day, we were calmer, um, and 
amused ourselves, teasing the rats, placing our faces against the glass which separate us. They could not fathom the invisible barrier which separated them from us, and we laughed as we watched them leaping against the heavy glass. But the day after that we realized how serious our position was. The air was foul. Even the heavy smell of oil within our stronghold could not dominate the fetid odor of the beasts massed round us. And there was no way of admitting fresh air without also admitting the rats. In the morning of the fourth day, at early dawn, I saw the wooden framework of my window eaten away from the outside, sagging Inward, I called my comrades, and the three of us fastened a sheet of tin in the opening, sealing it tightly. When we had completed the task, Ichua turned to us and said, Dully, well, the supply boat came thirteen days ago, and she won't be back for twenty-nine. He pointed at the white metal plate sealing the opening through the granite. If that gives way, he shrugged. They can change the name of this place to Six Skeleton Key. The next six days and seven nights, our only distraction was watching the rats, whose holds were insecure, fall a hundred and twenty feet into the maws of the sharks. But they were so many that we could not see any diminution in their numbers. And thinking to calm ourselves and pass the time, we attempted to count them. But we soon gave up. They moved incessantly, never still. Then we tried identifying them, naming them, one of them larger than the others, who seemed to lead them in their rushes against the glass separating us. We named Nero. And there were several others whom we had learned to distinguish through various peculiarities. But the thought of our bones, joining those of the convicts, was always in the back of our minds, and the gloom of our prison fed those thoughts, for the interior of the light was almost completely dark, as we had to seal every window in the same fashion as mine, and the only space that still admitted daylight was the glassed-in lantern room at the very top of the tower. Then Legliot became morose, and had nightmares in which he would see the three skeletons dancing around him, so vivid that Ichua and I began seeing them also. It was a living nightmare, the raging cries of the rats as they swarmed over the light, mad with hunger, the sickening, strangling odor of their bodies. True, there is a way of signaling from lighthouses, but to reach the mast on which to hang the signal we would have to go out— on the gallery where the rats were. There was only one thing left to do. After debating on the ninth day, we decided not to light the lantern that night. Hmm? Now this, this is the greatest breach of our service, never committed as long as the tenders of the light are alive. For the light is something sacred, warning ships of danger in the night. Either the light gleams a quarter hour after the sun goes down, or no one is left alive to light it. Well, that night, three skeleton light was dark, and all the men were alive. Hmm? 
<laughs> At the risk of causing ships to crash on our reefs, we left it unlit, for we were worn out, going mad. At two in the morning, while Ichua was dozing in his room, the sheet metal sealing his window gave way. The chief had just enough time to leap to his feet and cry for help, the rats swarming over him, but Ligliot and I, who had been watching from the lantern room, got to him immediately. The three of us battled with the horde of maddened rats which flowed through the gaping window. They bit. We struck them down with our knives. We retreated. We locked the door of the room on them. But before we had time to bind our wounds, the door was eaten through and gave way, and we retreated up the stairs, fighting off the rats that leaped on us from the knee-deep swarm. I do not remember to this day how we managed to escape. All I can remember is wading through them up the stairs, striking them off as they swarmed over us, and we found ourselves bleeding from innumerable bites, our clothes shredded, sprawled across the trapdoor on the floor of the lantern room without food or drink. Luckily, the trapdoor was metal set into the granite with iron bolts. The rats occupied the entire light beneath us, and on the floor of our retreat lay some Twenty of their fellows who had gotten in with us before the trapdoor closed, and whom we had killed with our knives. Below us in the tower, we could hear the screams of the rats as they devoured everything edible that they found. Those on the outside squealed in reply and writhed in a horrible curtain as they stared at us through the glass of the lantern room. Ichua sat up. He stared silently at his blood trickling from the wounds on his limbs and body and running in thin streams in the floor around him. Ligliot, who was in as bad a state, and so was I for that matter, stared at the chief and me vacantly, started as his gaze swung to the multitude of rats against the glass, then suddenly began laughing horribly. <laughs> Three skeletons! The three skeletons are now six skeletons, six skeletons. <laughs> he threw his head back and howled, his eyes glazed, a trickle of saliva running from the corners of his mouth and thinning the blood flowing over his chest. I shouted to him to shut up, but he did not hear me, so I did the only thing I could do I, to quiet him. I swung the back of my hand across his face. The howling stopped suddenly, and his eyes swung round the room. Then he bowed his head, and he began weeping softly, like a child. A darkened light had been noticed from the mainland, and as dawn was breaking, the patrol was there, to investigate the failure of our light. Looking through my binoculars, I could see the horrified expression on the faces of the officers and crew. When, the daylight strengthening, they saw the light completely covered by a seething mass of rats. They thought, as I afterward found out, that we had been eaten alive, but the rats had also seen the ship, or had scented the crew. As the ship drew nearer, a solid phalanx left the light, plunged into the water, and swimming out 
attempted to board her. <laughs> they would have succeeded, as the ship was hove to, but the engineer connected his steam to a hose in the deck and scalded the head of the attacking column, which slowed them long enough for the ship to get underway and leave the rats behind. And then the sharks took part. Belly up, mouths gaping, they arrived in swarms, and scooped up the rats, sweeping through them like a sickle through wheat. Ah, yes, that was one day that sharks really served a useful purpose. The remaining rats turned tail, swarmed to the shore, and emerged, dripping. As they neared the light, their comrades greeted them with shrill cries, with what sounded like a derisive note predominating. They answered angrily and mingled with their fellows. From the several tussles that broke out, it seemed as if they resented being ridiculed for their failure to capture the ship. But all this did nothing to get us out of our jail. The small ship could not approach, but steamed around the light at a safe distance, and the tower must have seemed a fantastic, some weird, many-mouthed beast hurling defiance at them. Finally, seeing the rats running in and out of the tower through the door and the windows, those in the ship decided that we had perished and were about to leave when— Ichua, regaining his senses, thought of using the light as a signal. He lit it, and, using a plank placed and withdrawn before the beam to form dots and dashes, quickly sent our story to those in the vessel. Our reply came quickly. When they understood our position, how we could not get rid of the rats, de Glio's mind... Going fast, Ichua and myself, covered with bites, cornered in the lantern room, without food or water, they had a signalman send us their reply, his arms swinging like those of a windmill. He quickly spelled out, "'Don't give up. Hang on a little longer. We'll get you out of this.' <laughs> then she turned and steamed at top speed for the coast, leaving us little reassured." She was back at noon, accompanied by the supply ship, two small coast guard boats, and the fireboat, and a small squadron. At twelve-thirty, the battle was on. After a short reconnaissance, the fireboat picked her way slowly through the reefs, until she was close to us, then turned her powerful jet of water on the rats. The heavy stream tore the rats from their places, hurled them, screaming into the water while the sharks gulped them down. But for every ten that were dislodged, seven swam ashore, and the stream could do nothing to the rats within the tower. Furthermore, some of them, instead of returning to the rocks, boarded the fireboat, and the men were forced to battle them hand to hand. They were true rats of Holland, fearing no man, fighting for the right to live. Well, nightfall came, and it was as if— Nothing had been done. The rats were still in possession. One of the patrol boats stayed by the island. The rest of the flotilla departed for the coast, and we had to spend another night in our prison. Leglio was sitting on the floor babbling about skeletons, and as I turned to Ichua, he fell unconscious from his wounds. I was in no better shape and could feel my blood flaming with fever. Somehow... The night dragged by, and the next afternoon 
I saw the tug, accompanied by the fireboat, come from the mainland with a huge barge in tow. Through my glasses I saw the barge was filled with meat. Risking the treacherous reefs, the tug dragged the barge as close to the island as possible. <laughs> to the last rat, our besiegers deserted the rock, swam out, and boarded the barge, reeking with the scent of freshly cut meat. The tug dragged the barge about a mile from shore, where the fireboat drenched the barge with gasoline. A well-placed incendiary shell from the patrol boat bombarded them with shrapnel from a safe distance, and the sharks finished off the survivors. A, a whaleboat from the patrol boat took us off the island and left three men to replace us. By nightfall we were in the hospital in Cayenne. What became of my friends? Well, Lugliot's mind had cracked. He was raving mad. They sent him back to France, and— "'Locked him up in an asylum, the poor devil. "'Jua died within a week. "'Rat's bite is dangerous in that hot, humid climate, "'and infection sets in rapidly. "'As for me, when they fumigated the light, "'repaired the damage done by the rats, "'I resumed my service there. "'Why not? "'No reason why such an incident should keep me "'from finishing out my service there, is there? Hmm? "'Besides,' I told you I like the place. To be truthful, I have never had a post as pleasant as that one. And, you know, when my time came to leave it forever, I tell you that I almost wept as three skeleton key disappeared below the horizon. Hmm? Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape! Escape! Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence as we bring you again in response to hundreds of requests Three Skeleton Key starring Vincent Price Picture this place a gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself a bare black rock 150 feet long maybe 40 wide that's at low tide at high tide just the lighthouse rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean and all about it the churning water gray green scum dappled warm as soup and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish great violet schools of portuguese man of war and yes sharks the big ones the 15 footers and as if this weren't enough there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. A wind that had smelled the slow and frightful death that came one night to this bare black rock. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. And in you went. And up. Yes, up and up and round and round, past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, casks of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds and cartons and cans, and up, and up and up, round and round. Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept, and over the bunk room was the living and cooking room, and over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty, big steel and bronze baby with the sun gleaming through the glass walls all about, bouncing blinding little beams off the big shining reflectors, glittering and refracting through her lenses, the whole gigantic bulk of her balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. She was a sweetheart of a light. And at night, she'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with her revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. And it wouldn't be bad, the other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down. You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind, and it wouldn't be bad. <laughs> 
About those other two, Louis and Auguste. What a pair. Louis, he was head man, was a big fellow from the Basque country. Black beard, little hard black eyes, and a pair of arms that I tell you those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was, and what word he let go was law. A silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation, the most I could ever get out of him was... Jean, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They want to talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You, you're getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they send me somebody... Who that was Louis. When he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down because August was the talkingest man I'd ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in Paris. Yes, indeed. Played in over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous horrible, the way we used to scare the audiences. I I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand. Yes, gave it up completely. I really did. Couldn't stand it any longer. It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers, and the big yellow stars, when out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, there it was. Master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled, Louis! Louis! Couldn't understand it. I waited for the light to come around again. Ship headed for the reef. Coming right up. I had the glasses out now. I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. But why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Can't they see? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. Yeah, the square heads. What is it? What is it? Watch north, northwest. I know. I know what it is. Uh, what? The Dutchman, the flying Dutchman. We did a play about her once. Oh, what a performance. You ghastly galleon, hag-ridden, cursed ribbon. Must on. Shut up, will you? She's luffing. Yes. Sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned. The crew left her for some reason or other. But instead of sinking, she's gone on, running before every wind. She'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up. A beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? She didn't ram us, although we all expected it. 
But as we waited for the crash, she luffed again, caught some odd gust and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, healing and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to a pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief? She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think she'll ground this time? What? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? This is impossible. Absolutely impossible. What? Here. Take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. What is it you're... I had to focus, and then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no thousands, no mi- I don't know, an endless number of enormous rats. See them? Yes, I see them. Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know. What are you two doing? Here, give me a look. Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look, chatterbox. Give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yes. Uh, She's going to turn. She'd better turn soon. Suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the key? It's low tide. Yes. Yes, it is. Where's all the conversation, August, huh? Here, want the glasses again? Want another look? No, no. She's still coming on. Go away! Go away! Turn! Will you turn, I say? I pray you, turn! She's cracking up. The rats. Look, on the water. Like a carpet. They're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship's rats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The door below. It's open. Come on. Down we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared? You bet we were scared. August, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know. Right, Chief. But hurry, hurry. Look. See them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at the millions. They smell us. Here they come. Close the door. I can't, I can't. It's stuck. Let me. Oh, move. You move. He made it. Holy. That was close. One guy in. Look, there. Get him. Watch him. He's kicking. He was as big as a tarot Bigger. And his eyes were wild and red, his teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for us, starving, ravenous, and we fought him, fought that one rat all over the room. It was, oh, believe me, I do not exaggerate, it was like fighting a panther. Got him. We better get aloft. As we ran up the winding staircase, we passed the tiny windows of the various levels. And at every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louis, and I dreaded each successive level. Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them. Will you look at them? It's a nightmare. Will you look at them? 
air of the gallery was thick and fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim, brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass all about us. We could not see the sky, nothing, nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling hairy snouts, and their teeth, the rats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving. And we three, we stood very quietly, very, very quietly in the center of the classroom under our beautiful light. And we waited. What can we do? What can we do, Chief? Take it easy, old man. Take it easy. I can't. I just can't. It won't do any... It won't do any good to stand here and shake. That's right. Anybody want a cigarette? Yes. Yes, I have one. Thank you. Good boy. We've got to keep calm about this thing. Here's a light. <laughs> yeah, they don't light the fire, do they? <laughs> Guess not. Give me another match. <laughs> you don't like that much, do you? I don't rile them, August. <laughs> Give me some more matches. I'll strike them and strike them and strike them until they get scared and go away. They won't go away. <laughs> not until... Finish it, Chief. Not until what? Not until they've been fed. You can take just so much horror and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the glass. They could see us and they could rush at us, but that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise. If only it had drowned some of them. Ships rats don't drown. <laughs> No, sir, you cannot drown one of them. They're all climbing up the tower. This bunch around us is getting thicker. Yeah. Say, what's the time? Quarter six. You've got first watch, John. Right. Uh, wake me at ten. I will. Come along, August. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red. Sunset through the rats. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamps. It caught them, lit them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. Then I started the rotary motor. Light drove them mad as she swung slowly and smoothly about. She blinded them in the fierce stabbing bar of light, moving continually about, ever turning, ever touching, ever moving around and around. And they twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light. The bright light moving and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back, but you cannot help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light, blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell.
ten, but I didn't get much sleep that night. And when I came up into the gallery early next morning, there stood August, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats, waving his arms and making a speech. I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Prelate, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of the Marechal into the nether parts. <laughs> Do not be frightened, little children. I will he not hurt turning. you. I much. stood staring at him horror struck, but he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, telling his stories to all the rats, leaving no one out. August! August! Another one, a latecomer. Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. Agus, Move stop over it, there. Stop it. Let the gentleman be but seated. He didn't come, stop. Come, he went on, bowing and scraping to the rats, his big blue eyes rolling and winking, his wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arms and his face. He looked at me like a child. And then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below, go on. Oh, very well then. Later, my dear audience, later. Matinee today. Sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yes, sounds horrible. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> We could get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away trying to get at our eyes. Louie was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall 110 feet to the surf below. Sharks. They're eating them. Yeah, the sharks are our friends. Yeah, I'll get another bunch together. Yeah, my beauties. That's it. Pile of kill each other. There they go. Auguste joined in, too. Oh, very ingenious, Auguste. He learned that if he spread-eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back. Look! My portrait in rats. It went on all day. And then I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. Couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp and went to the window. Even as I looked at it, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, Louis, come uh, quick. What? What is it? They found a way in. I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy, and assured of the success of this maneuver, were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy body scudding against the other side as the window gave way. That ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. What was that? I don't know. It came from below. The storeroom window. 
Oh. They're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Right. Two of them got in. Let's go after them. We didn't have to go after them. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed a marlin spike, swung and smashed one in midair. No! I whirled to see Louie with the other. It had ripped his hand open and the blood was pouring all over the place. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung and got him. My hand! He got my hand! That's both of them, Louie. I'll, I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood! Look at it, my... My blood! I'm bleeding! Now, don't worry about it, Louie. Here, look. I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood! There, now. It's not bad, just the flesh. Then I became conscious of another new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood fascinated. Even as I did, it began to give way. And a bristling, whiskery nose showed through... Louie, Louie, we've got to go up. Next level was the middle quarters in the kitchen. I slammed the trap door there, too. But it, too, was wood. Uh, my blood. What are we going to do? I don't know. We'll be through this one in a moment. The gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. We made it. Across the trap door exhausted. While below us, the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather. And all about us, the others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off. And so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting. The hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. <laughs> Would you like to come in, my beauties? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in, you know. August was standing <laughs> by the glass, and in one hand he held a wrench. He was tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet and slowly, very slowly, tiptoed toward him. All I have to do is tap just a little harder. And, uh, I found a coil of wire in the tool kit and I trussed him up, fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company, and all about watching our little drama, The Rats. <laughs> day dragged by. The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. We had only one way of summoning them, and that was to shoot off distress rockets, but the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night, I tended the light 
but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day we lay, thirst-tormented, starving, waiting, waiting, and the following night I again tended the light, but the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted, and quite suddenly, about midnight, the light went out. There was nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do. Nothing. From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. When I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about us. Watching. Waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. And then... The rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out. There on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently at us. The light was out. They didn't know. I wanted to open the windows to call out to them, to warn them somehow, but I was afraid. What if, what if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger or crewman off watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all. That's the story. The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. August, insane asylum, he never recovered. And Louis, they took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Oh, yes. Well, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. No, no mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse, I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous, sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. 
Tonight we have presented Three Skeleton Key by George Tadeus, adapted for radio by James Poe and starring Vincent Price as Jean. Supporting Mr. Price were Harry Bartell as August and Jeff Corey as Louis. Sound effects on Three Skeleton Key, created by Cliff Thorsness and executed today by Mr. Thorsness, Gus Bays, and Jack Sixsmith, have been awarded the best of the year by Radio and Television Life magazine. Harry Essman was at the control panel and special music was arranged and conducted by Del Castillo. Next week... You are swimming for your life in the dangerous waters off the Florida Gulf Coast, about to be smashed by a launch carrying a vicious criminal who must kill you or die himself. And on shore 500 yards away, the police are waiting to arrest you for murder. And there can be no escape. Next week, we escape with an exciting tale of temptation and death on the Gulf Coast of Florida, as John and Gwen Bagney tell it in Danger at Matagumba. Goodbye, then, until the same time next week when once again we offer you Escape. A patch of weeds, a boxer's biography, and a mild, lukewarm bath. They're all clues that lead the police of Jackson, Michigan, to a killer in the gangbuster story on CBS this Saturday night. It's the case of the double push to be heard on most of these same CBS stations this Saturday night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, there we have it. Story and drama from story. Three Skeleton Key aired at least three times on the show Escape, at least twice on Suspense. I think I've got that right. And it's believed to have been done in some form on another show called Sleep No More, which I've only heard once. The adaptation of Monsieur Todou's story for Escape and Suspense was by James Poe. Mr. Poe was a young man when he adapted this and some other stories for Escape and Suspense. Then he went on to do script work in Hollywood for films such as Around the World in 80 Days, Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, Lilies of the Field, and They Shoot Horses, Don't They? You know, you begin writing because it's really neat. It's fun. You build a whole world in your mind, and then you lay it out where everyone can wander and wonder you want love, you want money, fame, sex, but mostly you're just having fun and just know you're going to be immortal. Live forever, as Ray Bradbury's Mr. Electro commanded. Monsieur Todou, I suppose, did live beyond his span, but now his hold on immortality hangs on this very slender thread. Old radio... Static, Vincent Price, other people, music and sound. And his story, as he wrote it, it's almost vanished. I know some of you out there in the dark do not like to have your stories acted out. I know some of you really do not like radio drama. Ah, well. I grew up in a world without television in the home. I grew up loving words and sound. I loved being read to, and then I loved reading. 
Coincident with all that, I also loved radio. I was the only kid, I think, in North America who ran to bed every night after dinner because I had a date with Judy, uh, Miss Brooks. I hung out with the great Gildersleeve, adventured with Johnny Dollar, tried to catch a glimpse of the shadow. I also listened to Gene Shepard and grew up in that distant wonderland where he did, Indiana, and I tuned in to Long John Nebel when he interviewed those lucky, lucky people who had been abducted by aliens. Oh, it was a universe of wonders up there in my room. Ray Bradbury was there, Arthur Conan Doyle, Edgar Allan Poe, and, yes, George G. Tudu. Well, all of that radio drama... It was already beginning to die. It was giving way to -to wall-to-wall music, news, and weather. The constant cry to buy, buy. Well, anyway, that's, that's enough of that. Times are, here in the nook, when I would love to have music, a few stings, light motifs, or just a few sound effects to shape these tales. But but, uh, sound, sound is a tricky thing. It can bring the world into sharp focus or pushed a bit too far. It'll drown a story, turn a serious moment into a laughing matter. If you want to hear extraordinary sound, sound that puts you into the imagined room and mood with the characters, have a listen to any episode of Gunsmoke, the original Gunsmoke, the radio show, the one with William Conrad as Matt Dillon. They're easy to find, and I and I think you'll hear what I mean. So, here we are. We end another show, as said, an experiment. How do you like this tale? Does it terrify? Did me when I first heard it. Still does when I read it. Please, don't think we're going to make frequent use of radio drama here, as I said. I love it. But... At its heart, it's not what we do here. So, rise up, uncurl yourselves one from the other, stretch and scoot. Begin the trudge, and yes, you probably will see a rodent or two en route. This is a big city. There's a lot for a rat to eat out there. Anyway, there are not ship's rats, just little brown Norway rats. So few of them get to be as much as, say, a foot long or so. Few of them are as adorable as Remy, but the cuisine in Chicago's dumpsters is limited. They write no stories, these rats. They read no books. So what do they have to do but eat and make little rats? Well... You'll make it home. You'll make it to bed. And you will lie there for a bit, thinking of that sound. The shattered squeal of a million rat voices. Or you'll hear the clabber of rat claws on wood and glass. Perhaps you'll think you smell their... Well, why bring that up now? You're on your way to... uh, What is it? Yes... Pleasant dreams. Hmm? Hmm? 
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. About the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.